Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Henry Jaglum's 1983 comedy, Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? Oh, where have you been, Billy Boy, Billy Boy? Oh, where have you been, Charming Billy? I have been to seek a wife. She's the joy of my life. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. It's Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell. And with me is the Michael Emile to my Henry Jaglum, Doug Tilly. <laughs> Doug, how's life right now? I was thinking about doing a Michael Emile impression, but I definitely couldn't turn it. Uh, I couldn't pull it off. And even if I pulled it off, it probably would come off as anti-Semitic. I mean, this is, this is the thing. I For people, for the few listeners we have who listen, even when they've never seen the movie, you can't. Michael Emile is such a caricature of a New York Jewish man that to do an impression of him at all, if you are not Jewish, is just inherently anti-Semitic. You just can't do it. You just can't. It's like you're Let white. me just paint a picture for the audience because yeah, you're yeah. right. But most people would not see this. Listeners, Larry David makes an appearance in this movie, and he's still not the most Jewish person in that scene that he's in. Larry David <laughs> seems like a young hipster, like a young, cool hipster compared to like most <laughs> yeah. of the other men in this movie. Yeah, that's right. It's psychotic, actually, when you see him. It's only his, I'll be honest, Doug, it, it was the voice. I wouldn't have known that was, we're getting distracted, but I wouldn't have known that was Larry David if it wasn't for his voice. And I was like, oh, there he is. That's Larry. Oh, I'm look a at all that. Familiar. Look at all that hair. I've watched uh, episodes of Fridays that show that he was a uh, right. cast yes, member, yes, and he yes, looks yes. you know pretty similar to that, and that's early 80s type stuff. But yeah, I mean, look, I know we are jumping ahead, like you said, but let me th- say that the three things that were most appealing about me watching this movie was knowing that Larry David's going to be in it, knowing that Orson Welles is going to be in it, and of course, knowing that Carol Kane is going is going to be in it. And I cannot wait to talk about all three of those appearances. Oh we man, we're really scraping, we're really scraping for all three of those. Okay, uh, you know what we're not scraping for today, Doug is things to talk about regarding Carol Kane. As y'all know, we we like to start all these shows off with a little bit of info, if there is new info to be had. Now, obviously, on a show like uh, Vic Diaz, there's not often very much stuff to talk about. But sometimes with Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, there's stuff for us to talk about. Uh, up first, I want to I want to point out something. Doug's added this picture into our notes here. <laughs> this is an Instagram post from Diane Keaton, you know, uh, a well-respected actress. Uh, and... In all caps, she's written, isn't my dear friend Carol Kane beautiful? Question mark, exclamation point. And then tagged Carol Kane's account, which, by the way, the fact that hers is C. Kane 08. <laughs> that there were that many other C. Canes that she had to settle for being the eighth of the C. Canes. And it is like a very like uh, uh, washed out, I'm assuming from the 70s picture of Carol It's Kane. actually a series of photos that she posted. Like oh, okay. a, it, It's like a little slideshow thing mm-hmm. of photos of her good friend. But I love it. She has she tagged it with the audio is Stevie Wonders. Isn't she lovely? She's mm-hmm. just like, I guess Diane Keaton woke up. One day recently, it was just like, you know who people don't appreciate enough? My good friend, Carol Kane, decided to put an Instagram post about it. And then there's a comment here from uh, the one and only Bette Midler, (laughs) yas-queening this post. (laughs) And, you know, this is... this is one of the reasons, and we talk about this too much, but I just got to say, another reason why we do this podcast, because Diane Keaton and Bette Midler are out there hyping up a woman that, like... 
a good half of the movie going public still aren't sure who she is. You know what I mean? Like, despite her career, despite being in some amazing things, despite being one of my just favorite people to see on screen, there's a bunch of people who probably saw this post on Instagram and were like, who? Who is this? She looks familiar. What? What's happening? And it, it's just crazy to me. It's still crazy to me, Doug, that, that this is where we're at. But it is what it I is. Mean, you know? I mean, let us not get it twisted. Carol Kane right. is a very famous actress. And, you know, she still gets a lot of work and was recently on that Star Trek series and all that. Yep. But, but you're right. There is, at the very least... She doesn't have the name recognition level of a Bette Midler or Diane Keaton. Right. Um, and it, it, I I think one of the reasons that we started this podcast in the first place was a general sense that her skill was undervalued as both an actress and as as like a human being. So it's something that we wanted to celebrate. Yeah. And it, it just shows that that has continued. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, you know, I'm we're certainly not saying anything too much because uh we get a lot less confused looks than when we were just doing the eric roberts podcast which you know that's i feel like more people i know know who carol kane is than eric roberts which is still crazy to me but it is what it, it is it's an interesting thing to compare i think that there's a lot because carol kane's career has never fallen off in the way that eric roberts has where you know part of the reason he's so prolific is because he it at some point had to be in order right. to maintain things but has always consistently gotten work but it's funny to think, you know, you know, he he is also another actor where the name doesn't get as much recognition from a lot of people that we know as the parts do, right? We, if you say like the guy from Suits or something like that, or the guy from this Stock by My Doctor series, or even if people are more familiar with things like Public Greenwich Village or sure. Running Train, yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. But it's definitely, <laughs> or in the case of both of us having to talk to people. Yes, he's Julia Roberts' brother. <laughs> uh-huh. Or Emma Roberts' dad. That also is helpful. Nowadays. Kids nowadays. today. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of people that uh, Carol Kane knows, we've got an uh, update here from the ever-informative uh, uh, Good Morning America culture desk. Uh, Rhea, Rhea Perlman reunites with Taxi co-stars Danny DeVito, Tony Danza, Carol Kane. Uh, so apparently, Rhea Perlman is in a show called Let's Call Her Patty. Uh, new new play. Uh, she stars in the show, and she posed at the premiere. It was wait, was this a premiere or a red carpet moment? Opening night. Opening night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the, the the opening night of the show. Uh, posed for pictures with Danny DeVito, Tony Danza, and Carol Kane. Uh, I'm sure listeners of this show are well aware. These are all folks from Taxi, a show that I have now been harassed multiple times for not <laughs> liking enough. Uh, but I still don't think it's that funny. Um, in case you didn't know, Taxi ran for five seasons, 1978, June 1983. And this is not, by the way, the first time that this has been a news piece. Apparently, every time anyone from Taxi gets together, there needs to be – because, you know, we had that picture from the brunch, right? Didn't of course. You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just feel like we're going to – the more that you are looking for Carol Kane stuff, we're just going to keep getting these updates of like, hey, these people still talk to each other. Here's a picture. I mean, there is – it's still sort of unique, right? Because uh-huh. you don't see the chairs cast getting together that often and, and having true. pictures it's taken true. together. Uh, but the odd thing about this was the fact that it's labeled as several stars from the hit TV show Taxi had a mini reunion in New York City with that photo. I actually didn't realize that Rhea Perlman was ever on fucking Taxi. I had to look it up because, you know, I know her from Cheers. That's her most famous role by right. far. And the fact that she was was married to Danny DeVito and they obviously still have a strong relationship even though they're no longer married. Mm-hmm. Um that that you know that was the odd thing. It's like here's a collection of actors from Taxi. You know, three of the mains and someone who just showed up at some point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
but but still, there are people that if you saw a picture of them hanging out at a party, either in the past or currently, you wouldn't be like, "Holy shit, I can't believe." You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> there are certain there are certain configurations of famous people that it makes sense. You're like, okay, they're friends. You know, even though even sometimes when famous people make sense thematically, you didn't know they were friends. Like, uh, there's a Thanksgiving picture of. Uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy and Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm not surprised they know each other, but the fact that they're hanging out with the bird on Thanksgiving, you know, like they're having dinner together is like a little like, oh, okay, that's a little weird, but sure, that makes sense, I guess. This is like, she's going to see them again. Are we going to yeah. get an update every time she sees them in public? I hope I guess, so. I, yeah, Look how I happy she say, looks. It's kind of fun, right? Like, as much as I want to judge it and be like, okay, guys, this isn't news. Another part of me is like, I don't know, I'll, I'll talk about it every time on this show because I think that's great that they're all still friends and it makes me happy. I don't want to knock this idea, Liam, but you know those photos that are taken at fan conventions where they will collect uh, cast members from a sure. show or or a movie and, you know, people can pay money to pose with them and stuff like that. But they're all, you know, they have the same kind of background and you just have all these actors and it's just like they're nice and sometimes, you know, sometimes they're really cute depending on the on the photo. But that's weird because it always feels very kind of financially minded that they have come together. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But to me, it's always a photo like this where there's obviously people who have cared about each other for a long time and are trying to support each other. I don't know. There's just something about that that I really like. And Carol King could not look happier in this fucking photo. She looks like she's going to burst. Yeah, I agree. There's something about the, that it's not for promotion. They don't have a new thing. They're not trying to get convention dollars. Again, not, no disrespect to those folks. And honestly, as much as I am not a convention person, I do kind of love that that world exists so that some of these yeah, people absolutely. who maybe got burnt out on genre film or whatever have a way to still like make money. It might be frustrating in some ways, but at least it exists. It's something, you know? Uh, they they had that appearance recently where David Naughton and, and Griffin Dunn from American World in London were together and they had mm-hmm. a bunch of photo stuff. I like I love that stuff, right? I mean, it, it's it there are still sometimes it's just a rare opportunity for people who haven't seen each other in a while who run in different circles to get together. And there's nothing wrong with that. And yeah. you know, if it's for, for for money, that's fine too. It's just, you know, I I just like you know, I, I sound like my mother when I say, I just like to see people happy and having fun. Yeah, sure. No, I agree <laughs> with that though. Uh, speaking of updates on Carol Kane, we've got a piece here from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Star Trek uh, star Carol Kane watched old movies as a kid to ease her insomnia. It's weird. It's still weird to hear Star Trek star Carol Kane. Yeah. So <laughs> for those of you who, who maybe don't know, Carol Kane is on uh, Star Trek Strange. Wait, what is the what is the iteration yeah, Strange of Star New Trek? World. Strange New Worlds. Um, which, by the way, I still haven't watched. I need to get on the on the on the train for it. And I don't mean her season. I want to watch the season she's not on so that'll be up to date and you know be stoked for it's funny because i did start watching and i watched the first three episodes of the first season of it and was enjoying it very much but it's just one of those things where you know i had other shit i needed to watch no exactly exactly (laughs) uh so this article is in theory about this headline uh but it really ends up being a piece about her history her growing up yeah yeah about her experiences and the section that the title comes from uh, she's telling a story about having insomnia as a kid and how she'd watch these older movies late into the night. Uh, and she talks about the movie. One of the movies that had the biggest impact on her as a teenager was the member of the wedding. Uh, Julie Harris is in that. I've never seen it. Do you know? Yeah, this I, know. Movie? I, d- I don't know it. No. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know it either. And, uh, you know, I'm familiar a little. I mean, 
anyone who listens to this podcast knows once we're in the 50s, I'm kind of out of my depth. But I kind of know who Julie Harris is. I kind of I've heard the name Fred Zinneman before as a director. Um, I don't know much about this movie, though. So I feel like this part of this story, it it doesn't have a lot for me because I don't really know what to say about it. You know, if that makes sense, like in the sense of like this apparently was important for her development as an artist and as an actress. But I don't. It, I don't know what it means. You know, does that make sense, Doug? Like, I don't sure. really have a context for it. Yeah, I mean, the biggest, I think, thing that this article is trying to get at is how it led indirectly to her relationship with Betty Davis yeah. before yeah. she passed away. You know, I know that there was a plans or, or attempts to have Carol Kane play Betty Davis in a movie for years and years, and then later she did play her on stage. But the fact that they, you know, in the later stages of Betty Davis's life, that Carol Kane and her struck up a real friendship, I think that's pretty darn neat. Yeah, I think that's true too. Um, yeah, I it, it's it's interesting to hear those kind of details and to see it um, sort of develop later on. And it, I think, for this show, Doug, it has particular resonance because towards the end of the article, she's talking, kind of answering questions about her relationship with uh, Betty Davis, and um, she got a note from uh, uh, Davis before she left to film in Australia. And I couldn't help but think, is this that ridiculously terrible movie that we oh, watched her? Like Norman she, Loves Rose. That's yeah, right. I That's think, almost certainly what it was. The, the time period would have been exactly right. So, you know, I, I, unfortunately, Miss Davis did send her a note that said, fuck Australia, don't go there and be in that shitty movie. Because <laughs> that would have been a much better story. I have posted into our notes, Liam, the photo that she refers to yeah, here yeah. of of her. It's a, it's a very low-quality photo, but still, just the fact that she has that photo with her and Betty Davis, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That when she when she says that we that we looked alike, that that was a gift to her. I I you know I can I can kind of see it actually, but wouldn't be so the first thing I I would think. No, but because Betty Davis has such that distinctive look, but uh, but when you see Carol Kane having played her on stage and dressed up more like like you would expect Betty Davis to be dressed up. Yeah, I could definitely see it then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a that's that's our uh, Carol Kane updates. Um, you know, th- we're going to talk about Can't She Bake a Cherry Pie, directed by Henry Jaglum, in just a moment. And I only, and I think I mentioned this at the end of our most recent episode, I only really know Henry Jaglum. I know he's a filmmaker and an actor, but I hadn't seen any of his directorial efforts. I've seen him acting in, in a, ver- a variety of movies. But I know him most because of his book, Conversations with Orson, his his uh, his his transcriptions of his conversations with Orson Welles. And, you know, a lot of the kind of moments from that book have gone viral on social media in recent years simply because he's so, you know, Orson Welles is a very outrageous speaker and he's very open about his thoughts on, on people, uh, particularly his thoughts on Woody Allen, which are pretty interesting when you watch this movie and it's – and it's res- the response to this movie contemporaneously, which was a lot of comparisons to Woody Allen. Um, so, it, you know, it's the fact that that relationship is there and Orson appears in this movie, as we'll talk about, and in some of other uh, Henry Jaglum's work. I just thought it was interesting, uh, though I, I was kind of hoping we would have more of a conversation about it because it would play into this movie. But it doesn't really. I'm sure we'll get chances to talk about Orson Welles in the future. Yeah, I, I you know, I got to be honest is that I'm also pretty unfamiliar with a lot of Orson Welles, both uh, his actual filmography, of which I think I've seen two movies, but... Which ones? Uh, <laughs> probably the ones that everyone's seen, Doug, right? Like... Uh, Other Side of the Wind. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, still haven't seen. No, no, I was just joking around. Oh, okay, <laughs> but that. Uh, so, but uh, I'm also pretty unfamiliar with the lore, which I know people who know more of the Orson Welles lore than they've ever thought to watch his movies, right? Because he's such a character. People, there's so many stories about him. And whether you want to talk about his early years where he is this figure that everyone kind of respects, but also who is difficult to work with and causes problems, whatever, or if people want to talk about later on in life where they're more inclined to maybe make fun of him as as this, you know, demanding older figure who says these cryptic but also crazy things. I, I you know, I'm unfamiliar with a lot of it. I know he was in the Transformers movie, right? <laughs> uh, I've seen the commercial where he I'd yells love to at hear everyone. you piece together his career from what you're most familiar yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, he did yeah. commercials. <laughs> No, I, mean, <laughs> I know, you know, Citizen Kane, uh, uh, and then a few years later, did a, a drunken pee commercial, and then yeah. Transformers died. Yeah. This is what I know. This is this is what I know of him. <laughs> no, there's a couple things here and there, but for the most part, I don't know a lot about him, so I don't have a lot to say. I will say, when he shows up in this, which we'll talk about. It took me so long to really let myself believe it was him when he first shows up. I'm like fucking Orson Welles, and then when he starts talking, I'm like, Nah, come on. Orson Welles is going to be in this shitty little movie pretending to be a Jewish rabbi. No, that's not a thing. And then I was like, no, wait, that is him. What the fuck is happening? Because I forgot entirely, Doug, that you told me that they had a relationship at all. And so I went in. I didn't read anything about the movie beforehand. I just wanted to watch the movie. And so I had to just like convince myself, like, no, you're not crazy. That's fucking Orson Welles. And then afterwards, it's like. Oh, right. Yes, this is not a surprise for anyone else but me because everybody knows that they have this relationship and he's in some of the other movies and apparently he wrote this book and all this stuff. I just thought, how is Orson Welles in this fucking movie? What's happening right now? It was it was really a surprise for me. Okay, I got a couple of things to say before we get into our break. One, well, the, the book, by the way, isn't really it's not a book. It's It's just transcriptions of their conversations that they had that he had recorded. Uh, I guess with Orson's knowledge, while they were having lunch like every day or every oh, couple of fun. days, yeah. yeah, yeah so, yeah. so it really is kind of off the cuff stuff. The other thing, Liam, is Orson Welles' face is the first thing you see in this movie. He's part of the opening credit, like that when it says the movies. Uh, I think it's the Rainbow Production or something like that. That's Orson Welles' face at the beginning. <laughs> I didn't didn't click. <laughs> I, it didn't click for me till he's doing the magic tricks as the rabbi, and I and she's saying like I gotta watch this, and I'm like. Is that Orson Welles? Like, what the uh, fuck? Well, we'll talk about it in context, though. It doesn't make that much more sense in yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. Right, I will say right. that that Orson Welles, for those who don't know, was also a very skilled magician. It's one of the first things he did, even in show business right. when he was a kid. And he was in the so, guild his whole life, right? Like, yeah, and, and he would yeah. he would he had like television specials and stuff where he showed uh-huh, it off. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. yeah, so the fact that he's doing magic in this isn't so much of a surprise. Uh, but <laughs> it actually does not play much into the role. Sorry, no, uh, it doesn't play no. much into the plot of Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? Well. <laughs> And I, I I do the other thing you brought up, Doug, is the Woody Allen thing, and that's one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit here is the Woody Allenness of it all. But we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about 1983's "Can She Bake a Cherry Pie," starring Karen Black and Michael Emil. Can she? Can she bake a cherry pie? <laughs> uh, you know, here's the thing, Doug. Life's not like they told us. We'll be right back. <laughs> What's the matter with you? I want you to understand that there's a direct relationship between hanging upside down like this and my ability in sex. You know, you've expressed your appreciation at my ability to do it for an indefinite long period of time at an intense level. And 
Of course, the blood circulation is one of the very important sexual factors and the blood circulation to the sex organs is enhanced by this. And now I want to get some direct stimulation to the genital region. And uh, even doing this way, I'm strengthening my sexual functioning incredibly. I hope I'll have an opportunity to demonstrate it shortly. Maybe this explanation seems far-fetched, but if you figure out the physiological components of it, you'll see that it really makes complete sense, because of course, without the blood circulation, the erection wouldn't function altogether. Was the door stuck, or what was happening? I was trying to push it, because I saw you all... Eli, please come down, okay? You can die like that. Not only the blood circulation, but the neurological stimulus to that is necessary. In this Z is walking up and down Manhattan streets, talking to herself, and to the husband, who has just left her. At a sidewalk cafe, she runs into Eli... A very unlikely, funny, and touching relationship develops between two lost souls in the big city, which is the third major character in this film. It's 1983's Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? Doug, that's crazy. Did you know that a location can be the third unlikely character in a movie? Did you know that? I just can't believe that it's New York that is the third character. I know! Oh, man. Usually it's like uh, Narlins or Chicago, not New York. The Windy Apple, the Big Apple, the the Rotten Apple. What? I, I will say, Liam, as ridiculous as that plot summary is, New York actually is a huge part of this No, it's, it's funny because I'm making fun of it because it's become such a cliche. But more so than many other, quote unquote, New York movies, this is a very New York movie in, in its own sense. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll get you there. have trouble finding a review of this movie that doesn't mention the fact, like some nostalgia for this era of New York specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this was uh, written and directed by Henry Jaglum, who's a pretty prolific writer, actor, director. Um, you have already said that you know him best for his relationship to Orson Welles. Uh, people, you know, might know some of his films and stuff. He was one of the Lee Strasberg uh, people at the Actor Studio in New York, which I, like a lot of people, only know from, like, stuff on Bravo or whatever, right? Uh, he wrote and directed off-Broadway theater uh, and cabaret before setting up in Hollywood in the 60s. Um, He's very much like part of that like Easy Riders, Raging yes. Bulls type, right? He was part yes. of like the Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider, post-Easy Rider crowd. So, I mean, he definitely was uh, entrenched in that to the point, which is why you see someone like, like Karen Black show up in this movie, I think. Right, right. And it's... For someone, I I am not as connected to that world. Like you know sure. what I mean. Like I know a couple things from it, but I would have never pictured him as part of that world myself. Only because a lot of the movies he's done, I I are not things that I'm super familiar with, and and I really see that time as being so like hippie adjacent, and that's just not. I even though I've heard this name it's not really the association i've had with his work you know but i think that's just my lack that's my ignorance right that i think he was you know more in that community than i realized and 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 uh uh, but the first movie of his that uh i had ever heard of is actually the one that according to this write-up you gave me uh was sort of the one that people got to know him the most for which was sitting ducks in 1980 when i looked this dude up whose like name i felt like i should know i was like oh sitting ducks i know that movie which is weird right like of all the stuff that he's done but it was like the only thing that i was like oh i'm familiar with that movie uh but it's you know i don't know that that is what the general public know knows him for per se um one of the things to note about this movie that uh it, it, 
you included here that I think it's worth people's knowing is that there was a, a review by film critic David Thompson uh, that says uh, that this movie is an actor's film and that it grows out of their personalities. It is as loose and unexpected as life, but is shaped and witty as a great short story. In truth, a new kind of film. Okay, sure. Sounds good. Um, I mean, what that means, by the way, is that it's a most it, a lot of the dialogue in this is improvised, which it's uh, a you very can tell improvised when you're movie. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in fact, even when I said like written by uh, Henry Jaglum, it's you know it's unconventionally written. Let's say he has he's I, I bet he has not done as much of the dialogue here as people think of when they think of a, a movie being written. I, sh- uh, I should also mention Liam, and, I, and we would get into it anyway. But like, this is clearly a very low budget movie. Yes. But it's also really rough around the edges. Like the editing is really rough sometimes. Yes. Sometimes it'll just cut away in the middle of a sentence to something just to just to bridge two takes of things. And it just it just feels rough, which isn't bad necessarily. I watch a lot of, of roughly edited movies to say the very least. But it's something to remember that whatever whatever you praise about this movie in terms of the performances and the dialogue, that it's still it feels like someone who's still kind of finding their feet in terms of the style. Yeah, I mean, I think this is his third or fourth movie. This is his fourth movie. Right. And and he has, I think he's directed something like 23, 24 movies. He's directed a lot of movies. And I and like, I will say that even though his name is one that I hear a lot, uh, I don't hear about these specific movies very often. Uh, so that's right. why it's, it is, and I don't think that's unusual. I mean, we're pretty big into watching movies and, and he's made movies as recently as 2017. So it's not like they're, you know, that, 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 that it, it goes back so far, but he just makes odd independent movies like Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? A movie that, by the way, up until recently was hard to find in a version that was watchable at all. There's a version on Tubi you can watch right now of Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? And it's awful looking. Thankfully, the version that you and I watched was uh, was of a very high quality. In the limited research I did, he has his fans. There are people who seem to care oh, yes. about his movies. But I have not heard a lot of discussion about him as a director or about these movies individually. Uh, and so, you know, in some ways I feel a little out of my depth in other ways I feel like, well, I think I represent probably a chunk of the audience and like his name was familiar to me, but when I looked at the list of movies, the sitting ducks or whatever was the only one I had heard of before. Like even of the more contemporary, like more recent movies, I totally under the radar, like I not, didn't know anything about them. So. Um, I, I bet a lot of people might feel a little bit like, who is this again? Like, what's I happening? mean, I, you know? we had we had talked before. Like, a safe place was released by Criterion, so it, that's his probably his most famous film, but it's also his first film. I think one of the things we can talk about here is whether can she bake a cherry pie would be a good introduction to his style. Yeah, which we'll get into in a second. Let's talk about <laughs> some of the cast here. We've got Michael Emile, who is, according to what I read on the internet, this is his brother, Doug, his brother. Henry Jaglum's brother, I believe. Yes, so. yes. Uh, also, Karen Black, Michael Morgata, Martin Harvey Freeberg, Francis Fisher, who I had to look up because I'm like, why does this person look so familiar <laughs> to me? Uh, Anna Ravive. And then, as we've mentioned, brief appearances by Larry David, <laughs> Carol Kane. And of course, Orson Welles as the magician. Uh, we've sort of hinted a bit about some of our feelings around this movie. Uh, Doug, I just want to ask you straight up before we get into any of the of the of the details here. What did you just think, like as a viewer, as someone who talks about movies? What did you think of? Uh, Can she bake a cherry pie? 
Uh, I was intrigued by it for a lot of the running time. And uh, I know I've actually, I, already to you personally, Liam, have given the impression that maybe I didn't like Michael uh, Emile's performance. But to me, I actually think he makes the movie almost entirely. Uh-huh. He is a very unusual performer. He He's a lot of the reviews that we've both read about this movie mentioned Woody Allen he sort of is like a parody of a Woody Allen type character. He's neurotic, but he's very eloquent, but he just talks shit all the time. He's kind of obsessed with his own sexuality and he's just a weirdo. And that is the thing about this movie. It's not about two broken people. It's not about two like uh, confused, mixed up people, people who have psycho. It's about two weirdos finding each other and developing a relationship sort of that where both of them don't really know what that relationship is. They are a bit lost and a bit confused, but they're definitely odd. And um, for the first half of the movie, I actually found that very, very intriguing to see this relationship develop and these semi, if not entirely improvised conversations between the two. When the movie starts to try to have more of a plot element in its second half, uh, that is when it lost me pretty significantly, particularly when you have lengthy sequences of Karen Black singing songs, um, which, I mean, she's very talented. Karen Black is, is actually terrific in this. She's she's so good, in fact, that it's hard to separate where her as a person ends and where the performance begins, which is, I mean, a real testament to her as a performer. But, like, the movie seems to be fascinated with things that I am not so fascinated about. To me, it's it's when they cut away to odd things like the character, like that weird uh, actor who has the pet pigeon who keeps trying to pick up women. It's like, I wonder what that is supposed to represent. And it does tie into the bigger plot near the end. But if you ask me what this movie is trying to say outside of, hey, relationships are weird. And they're particularly weird in New York because everyone is so fucked up. I'm not sure I could tell you. That's interesting because that was literally my next question on the on our little <laughs> question sheet here was uh, what what is this movie even about? <laughs> like I don't uh, uh, let let me just quickly say I think this is an easy movie to make fun of and I would be fine with spending the entire podcast busting on this movie. Honestly, I think However, some of the humor in this is very legitimate and yes. like intentional and like there's some yes. really funny stuff in it. I actually think that it. Ev- by the end had won me over to it being not actually that bad <laughs> which is might sound like very faint praise but but let's be clear and, and and I'm not exaggerating here if you just scroll through the reviews on Letterboxd whether those are by regular users or by actual film critics people either love or hate this movie it really goes one of two directions and for me the vibe of it really set me off a little bit at first because Michael Emile is so unique. In fact, he's so unique that I assumed he could not possibly be our protagonist, right? That it had oh, to were, be. Were you like me, Liam, where the person he's talking to when he's first introduced, I'm like, oh, that's the guy who's going to be the lead character for yeah, sure. Th- that was Mort, right? Martin yeah, yeah. Harvey Freeberg. I was like, oh, this guy. Yeah, this is this is what the movie's about. It's Martin Harvey Freeberg. He looks like a lovable schlub. Yeah. So then suddenly when we're spending more time with Michael Emile. I could not fucking believe that was this was un- going to be the lead guy. I got, he looks also, and again, he's, he's an odd character for sure. And he uh-huh. delivers his lines in a very odd and unique way. But he also looks 
like he's in his sixties. Like he looks old, even though he's he couldn't have been because he's still with us. But like he just has this weird look to him that makes the the romance all the more the romance at its core all the more kind of I was gonna say off putting. That's a little unfair to both of them, but it just makes it a little more unexpected. Right, and the the it took a while for me to <laughs> find that endearing. Though I will say, from the first moment she's on screen till the end, I found Karen Black just mesmerizing i think her performance is incredible even if i'm not always sure the movie knows what to do with her in the context of the movie i still think she's great but it's like who is this guy that she's playing with basically who she's in a scene with and his energy is so strange like how do they sort of bounce off each other sometimes it feels like they just took someone off the street and put them in a lead role in a movie which is the thing that i think is most interesting you know they do um there's like a stage version of point break where they take someone from the crowd and make them Keanu Reeves I yes. think I think that it's like that it's like it's not that he's a bad actor it's that it's hard to know if he is acting he just seems to be saying what he is thinking at any particular yeah ex- no exactly and I want to get back to the what you were saying about his appearance which I don't want to harp on but this yeah. is very much a case of and this happens now but it was just a thing to me in the 80s where they would be 30 year old often men who looked like they were grandpas this looks like a grandpa who's weirdly in shape Right. Like when you see him doing some exercises, you're like, oh, he's actually. Yeah, you know, he's kind of exactly. Actually, he's got some muscles. He's he's kind of a, a ripped guy. Why does he look like he's a million years old otherwise? Right. Um, but that was the part where he just, hangs out with his daughter. Right. Because he, he has. But his daughter's like five or six years old. And I'm like, yeah. how the fuck? I mean, I guess I was like, is he doing like a Larry King thing where he had the kid when he was 58 years old? But no, no he's supposed to be, I think somewhat similar in age to Karen Black's character. It's just, it's hard to see it. It's just I a think weird era. I, I would bet money they're both like 35, but he does not look 35. He looks ancient. And, you know, the, blame blame different aesthetics that these people exist everywhere at all times, but in the 80s, we were more willing to put them in a movie, or blame <laughs> all the lead and the gasoline. I don't fucking know. <laughs> but he looks rough. He looks like he's been, you know, drinking since he was five and now 30 years later it's it's really worn him out anyways i don't want to harp on that too much but it just it makes the movie interesting and it is something that some viewers find distracting because in our current time doug whenever a movie is set like any time period any context only beautiful people are in the movie for the most part like it's oh these are supposed to be uh uh you know uh ragged peasants in the 1600s but they're all like models basically or maybe not all models i'm exaggerating but all generally sort of people that you would be like oh that's an attractive person Uh and you know in earlier time periods that wasn't always the case and sometimes they're like no he just looks like a guy he's just a guy and he's in the movie and so i think that is interesting because and people have different opinions about this i think karen black though unique looking is beautiful and i think that for some viewers is going to be off-putting because they have this love affair and you might be wondering other than the fact that she's clearly dealing with like extreme mental trauma from being uh, you know abandoned by her husband why is she with this guy like it's not clear what their relationship is it's also odd because she doesn't seem to necessarily like him no she keeps getting so (laughs) mad at him all the time that's like a big (laughs) element of it um i do his 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 interest in her seems to be a a, uh a a combination of desire for her because of her looks 
and the fact that she doesn't like him is one of the things that he likes. Him. He is, <laughs> or, or he can't read her. <laughs> he's fascinated by. He can't tell if she likes him or not, and he's fascinated by what is clearly she's on the edge a lot of the movie of maybe like losing it. You know, she's and to be fair, I read a few different places where Jaglum talked about this movie represents his response when his wife left him. Yeah, he was like Karen Black. And this is about or again, I wouldn't say that's what it's about because I'm not sure what this fucking movie is about, but it is inspired by his own feeling of when a relationship ends and you feel, you know, uh, 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 lost or unmoored. Sure. You feel a little bit on the edge. And there's this moment in the movie that I think was actually one of the more compelling moments where she's like. Did you ever feel like your whole life is kind of a dream and then you suddenly wake up and realize you're someplace else? And she's like, this is the moment when I'm waking up and this is my life now. And I'm sure there are people who are like, what a stupid, crazy thing. That was one of the more relatable parts of the movie for me, Doug. Sure. I was yeah. like, and and I'll be honest, I've been busting a little bit on Michael Emile's character and a bit on his performance, though ultimately I think he is acting, uh, though I, I bet he's not that dissimilar from this character. <laughs> He is acting in a sense, and this is a very eccentric person. The thing that I haven't yet said, Doug, that I probably should say is um, between the two of them, he's very relatable to me. Can I can I be honest about that? He reminded me of my stepdad so fucking much. <laughs> so fucking much. He's just a little bit crazier than my stepdad, but like not that crazier. Now, granted, I didn't grow up growing up with my stepdad. Like him and my mom got together when I was basically an adult. So it's like it's not like I grew up with that energy, but like that I mean, because here's what y'all need to understand. Because he looks old, it's kind of surprising when he is he has the gripes of a young man, right? That he's, you know, he sleeps with lots of women, he dates all the time, he's just a fuck machine, but he just wants to settle down, but he also doesn't want to settle down because he kind of likes dating all the time. Like there's a lot of context here where he's talking the way a uh, aimless 30-year-old single might talk, right? Especially in the 80s. Uh, that was really relatable. When my mom and George got together, that's him. He's just a dude who's just like, w- when they first got together, to be fair, they dated and then they broke up and now they're together again. Uh, when when they were dating, he was very much like, I. the reason I always thought like, I'll just get married when I want to and I, there's no pressure, there's no time limit was because like knowing these people who were just like hanging out well into their 40s, like, oh, I guess I'm getting a little old. I might want to settle down. I'm like, yo, you can see 50 from where you are. Like, what are we talking about? But their vibe was very much like I have forever. And that's like this dude, like even though he's talking about wanting to settle down, he also like doesn't want to be in a serious relationship with Karen Black right away, but he still wants to pursue her because she doesn't like him and she's sexy and he's kind of like interested in that. And so much of that, plus his insistence on talking about things that like no one around him cares about. That sounds really mean to my stepdad. But there is a certain amount of like eccentricity there that I was like, yeah, I know people like that. And and not just him, but he reminded me the most of my stepdad, uh, but I know just lots of people who are like this dude, Doug. Like, he felt very real to me. It's more the whimsy of Karen Black that is, like, the, for me, fantastical element of this movie, though very compelling. I didn't, I've didn't. i never known anyone like that. 
unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for me, I've also known never known anyone like the actor with the pigeon. That was like also as it, but his I'm, girlfriend who just is like doesn't know what to do with herself. That felt very relatable. Yeah, as well. no kidding. That's yeah, a little yeah. too real. It actually gets it, a little it, disturbing. It, yeah, it kind of was. Sad. I was. It's kind of was why I wasn't surprised the number of reviews that accuse this movie of misogyny. I'm like, oh, is it because of the? It's because of the girl at the cafe. Because I feel you on that one. I don't know. I think the movie is a little bit sympathetic to her, but I will say I do, that I think I think you're right. But I I think if you're not willing to hear that part, it's a very rough portrayal of that relationship, yeah. right? Karen Black's character is not a manic pixie dream girl. She's not just at all. She's just manic. You know, she's just she is struggling and she's in the middle of her struggle. I do think that when you were just talking about that, Liam, you were kind of getting at the core of what this movie really is about. It's kind of about two things, because if she is supposed to represent something that Henry Jaglin was actually dealing with, I think that's a very personal aspect of this movie. But the key is quite kind of that early conversation between Mort the guy who works with Michael Emile's character and Michael Emile's character. And Mort is like clueless. He cannot meet a woman to save his life. They, 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 you know, he, he doesn't know how to meet people. And Eli and Michael Emile's character, he can meet people. He's great at meeting people and he can make those connections, but he's having difficulty or has had difficulty up to this point, making deeper connections. And maybe he doesn't, like you said, maybe he doesn't want that necessarily, or he thinks he doesn't want it. But when he connects with Karen Black, well, her disinterest or her lack of direct interest makes him want that more or makes him realize how much he wants that. And he starts to pursue it a bit more. But that moment later in the movie where that, the pigeon guy, the actor, he is just straight ahead. He's like, I want you, I want to sleep with you. Like his method of attracting women is a being conventionally attractive and B being very straightforward about what he wants. And she directly goes, and just like a parent, not just her, like we see another woman who who is really wooed by that. That might be seen as somewhat misogynistic, just the way that they react to this yeah. fucking dude. Uh, he, he's, he's basically one of those pickup artist assholes that you see on, on YouTube. But I mean, that the way that these, these three different characters, Mort, Eli, and this actor, the way that they approach the idea of making connections with women and... That I think is what the movie, the movie, the core of the movie is about. The problem is that I don't see myself reflected in any of those three approaches. No, yeah. So I mean, in a sense, I just wanted to ask you about Doug. This is like a war of the sexes movie, whatever that fucking term means, because sure. that's a term I grew up with that I never understood what it meant. Even once I became a full men adult are from Mars, Liam. I mean, yeah, even once I became a full adult who was in relationships, like adult relationships, I was like. What the fuck was everyone upset? All I heard throughout the 80s and 90s was, you know, it's the war of the sexes. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, all this shit, right? And I was always like, what are we fucking talking about? Like, I never understood. And even, like, describing pieces of art. Oh, it's a really compelling movie about the war of the sexes. What does that mean? What what does that mean? I don't know what we're talking about. And I think that's what this movie is, right? It's about this idea that there is a... Uh, that in our in our by the way heterosexual relationships mm-hmm. with each other, sure. uh, that there is something broken. Now, if this is coming from a different direction, which is queer friends saying there's something wrong with the heteros, that I can vibe with. Like, yes, I think there is something wrong with us. I I agree. Thank you for pointing that out, friend. But the idea that like there's just just inherent war between. The two, which, by the way, for those of you who are well aware that there aren't just two sexes uh, or two genders or however you want to imagine it, this is this has this movie has a moment that is very essentialist that I can only accept that it's 
supposed to be satire or something, right? Like, I can't, that whole scene, I'm like, no, this isn't real. They're making fun of this, right? Please tell me that they're making fun of this. But but is this what this movie is about, this idea that there is, like, an inherent conflict between men and women? Is that sort of the one of the guiding principles of this movie? And is that why I find it confusing, even though parts of it are compelling? It's odd because we've both been married for a long time, right? Yeah, and yeah. It's, but I don't think of my wife as someone I am at war with or that we are struggling against one another. No, she's the, not the enemy, right? She's not. But like, even when we were first getting together, I, you know, I'm sure there was just, there's a, there's always going to be a feeling out process, but at some point you need to be vulnerable enough with yeah. your partner in life to be like, this is who I am. If we are going to have a relationship that's going to last the rest of our lives, you need to know who I am entirely. I sometimes get the impression. I don't know if you see this as well, Liam, that there are people who are married who have never shown the other person who they really are at all. Oh and yeah, one hundred percent. I can see how it's how it, it, there's there's definitely fear in that, but at some point, you know, the person's going to see you go to the bathroom or see you like hurt yourself and in, in a way that you need the other person's help. You know, your partners. That's the whole idea. You're supposed to be pulling in the same direction. Yeah, I don't. Hmm. I really don't understand it, Doug. And in in the context of this movie, I think part of my confusion is that. It, it, in order for me to understand this movie at all, I do have to think that there's some kind of like so, like inherent critique of these characters and what they do and how they act. If we're not supposed to think that they're ridiculous, then I'm very confused. By the, the, that, the, the thing at the end where she goes with the actor and she's about to have sex with him and then realizes that he had been taking photos of her, right. which kind of reinforces that the paranoia that she's been feeling up to that point, which, you know, as watching it, you'd be like, oh, she's. And she looks feeling- directly into the car- camera and says, I see you there watching me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But the fact that that happens and then while that's happening, um, Michael Emile's character is so frustrated and um, the actor's girlfriend, Francis Fisher's character, goes home with him and they're about to have sex. And then she comes home after having this odd realization of what she wants which apparently makes her more emotionally available to him like trying to untangle what the movie is supposed to be telling us at that point all you can really take away is oh these guys are all fucked up and uh this this probably is not a healthy relationship but it's probably good that these desperate people have found each other at least maybe they can grow together but maybe they also feed off their worst instincts about each other also true uh as you said earlier this movie gets compared exhaustively not just to Woody Allen in general but to Annie Hall in particular specifically <laughs> did you get that vibe I mean look okay let's acknowledge a couple things it's set in New York and it's mm-hmm. it's very proud of its setting in New York it really wants to show you New York it has a uh a character who feels very stereotypically Jewish sort of at its center sure and there's a man and a woman figuring their stuff out otherwise did this remind you of Annie Hall in any way shape or form it could be almost a parody of Annie Hall. Right. Right? Where it's just like, well, what if instead of being a genius comedian who is great with one-liners and always has the right thing to say, you just have this guy who's just this meandering, you know, completely ridiculous, always has something odd to say, you know, it, it more eccentric than than neurotic. And instead of a woman who is basically this... this uh, also a ball of neuroses, but someone who is still beautiful and stylish, that you have someone who is literally in the process of losing her mind at any particular moment. Yes. 
and to me, it's like that's why, in some ways, this movie is a lot more interesting than any all. Yeah, because it feels 100%. like well, that's a this is a lot more reflective of real relationships I've seen than than the one in Annie Hall is. Well, I think what it boils down to for me, the more I thought about it, Doug, is that I don't think this movie is very much like Annie Hall, and I think honestly, the, some of the reviews I read that really wanted to push how much this is like Annie Hall, they almost felt anti-Semitic to me because I'm just like, look, two Jewish men could be in a movie, and it's not. They're not the same. Like people were literally like Michael Emile's doing his impression of Woody Allen. I'm like, no, he's not. What are we talking about? That's not. I don't think I that's also, real. I did read some stuff about the idea of like like part of Karen Black's appeal is like the Shiksa appeal of her being a Gentile, and so and it's just like I don't know if the movie is necessarily playing no, with that, but I also no. don't know enough about that culture to know if that is something that this movie is. is if it is, to it's set. subtle though. It's it's not on this. It doesn't feel like it's on the surface to me. But regardless, what I realize about this movie is that if I try to accept it for what I think it's trying to do, which is as much as I don't think it's Annie Hall, I do think the movie is trying to be some version of a romantic comedy. Yes. And it's not succeeding because (laughs) it's just not getting whatever it is that makes romantic comedies work. But if I think of it as a mockery of romantic comedy, whether it wants to be or not, it parts of it kind of work for me, Doug. I found myself, I I agree with you that it starts off interesting. It kind of loses its way. I'm less bummed out at the second half, though I will say I don't know that all the singing scenes are that compelling. I do think they they accomplish something for me, which is um, the first time we see it, he is enamored of her. It's clear that whatever she's doing, even as she makes mistakes up there, he is like very enchanted by her. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then later on when we see it, he seems way less interested in this thing that she does all the time. (laughs) And it's, in fact, her in with this, like, I guess supposed to be sexy actor guy, you know, sort of a proto hipster, this dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's like her in is like he's seen her sing. And and it's clear that attention for accomplishing something is part of why she's doing that thing. And Even though the actor guy is obviously just saying. He's just bullshitting. He's just just bullshitting. bullshitting. Absolutely. Uh, So I think that narratively makes some sense but these are long singing scenes y'all and i get it that when you have a talent like karen black who's willing to sing in your movie maybe you don't cut those scenes because you just like that she's doing it but it, it doesn't need to be there and 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 it was part of this larger thing that you were pointing out that like it feels roughly edited and it's hard for me not to imagine that that might be intentional that this is actually an aesthetic choice mm. but if it is it's not an aesthetic choice that i think helps the movie However, when it was over and I thought about it later, as much as I found parts of this movie really frustrating, I kind of think parts of it are also very interesting. And I, I found myself re- really respecting Michael Emile a little bit, even as I was watching him thinking, what the fuck is going on with this guy? By the end of the movie, I was like, I don't know, I kind of like him. I kind of like him in this role, actually. It is a movie that does grow on you. And it's also a movie that I think a second watch would actually, I'd enjoy it more because all the rough edges would smooth out a little. But I have to say, like that scene where Michael Emile is hanging upside down and she's trying to force the door, I thought that was so funny. It was so about, fucking funny. He was, he was like, he's like, you were, you you talk about how great I am in, in my sexual virility and this is how I do it. I keep the blood. And it's just like, he's going on and on while he's upside down. <laughs> it's so bizarre, but so kind of very much in in character for this particular character who is just odd in a way that is acceptably real you know it it feels like this could be a real person it's 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 crazy to say because i bet there's a chunk of the audience who if they do decide to watch this movie will be like <laughs> this 
performance sucks because no one is like this guy. He is he is being ridiculous. And I just have to tell you that like he's a very slight exaggeration of like millions of people. <laughs> there are so many people like this guy. And I just think like, you know, at first I kind of felt how they would feel like this is this is I this is so irritating. Why is this the movie? And by the end I especially after it was over and I was thinking about it earlier, I'm like, no, nah, kind of, it kind of works, man. I think that's kind of uh, real. Now, this is the question I wanted to ask you. Is this just, you sort I kind of get a vibe of what you think about this. Is Michael Emile a con- compelling actor or is this just good casting by his I, brother? The thing about him is that he's more compelling than he is a good actor, right? He's just something that it's something about watching him and just wondering what the fuck he's going to say next makes me, makes him, infinitely watchable which is why i mean henry jaglum has has cast him tons of times in his movies right he knows that there's something about this guy who of course is related to him uh but like that that there is something unique that that he can bring to this picture it's just weird to see him in this context in a romantic comedy type context this guy as the lead actor it's so out off model from what we're used to it just makes it all the more intriguing and so i was charmed by it. so by the way l- listeners if you haven't seen this movie that relationship the michael emile karen black relationship that's the movie that's the whole fucking movie it's sometimes we get a little bit of other characters but you know if you go to the wikipedia page it only lists those two actors because there's really nothing else here which is now going to play into what we uh, our small other appearances that we mentioned yeah oh, okay oh well, okay so I, I want to bring up specifically this Larry David cameo. <laughs> Just for, because some people are never going to watch this movie. Talk a little bit about Larry David showing up and how you felt about Larry David showing up. You, you can't even call it a cameo because a cameo would suggest that he's been brought in for a right, small appearance yes. because he's Larry David. But at this point, he's not Larry David. He's just guy a guy who has written on Fridays and Saturday Night Live. This is well before, I mean, any of his success with Seinfeld. If anything, he was struggling a lot. He shows up for one scene. It's just for, it's like it's like two minutes of him talking to Mort, who at this point is kind of completely disconnected from the main plot, and he's just talking about how like a New Yorker's dream would be able to ride a taxi to wherever he wanted to go, which is a very Seinfeldian type type thing to say. Somehow Larry David was was always Larry David, and the way that he talks, it just feels like something from Curb Your Enthusiasm, right? He's already there. Um, I will say that watching him in this for that brief moment made me wish that he was one of the characters that was doing tons of improvised dialogue. I bet that stuff would be pretty interesting. Yeah. But that's kind of funny, right? You know, Curb Your Enthusiasm is an almost entirely improvised show. It has a framework that everyone improvises around. I wonder if that that concept is partially influenced by by Henry Jaglum's work here, right? It is a similar kind of idea. I it, It's funny because I was thinking that I wonder what, like died in the wool curb your enthusiasm fans would think of this movie not, <laughs> not because of larry david but because of the style you know yeah. and this is the other thing for me when going back to the annie hall question annie hall is so overly scripted some people love that like they it's love structured it's it, like very it's, specifically structured it is it is very much it has a certain both the narrative and the dialogue is so for me down to the button and this movie is not that. This movie is like, again, it's like an 80s New York Jewish Linklater film. It's like a, we're just going to wander around and talk shit. Yeah. It doesn't and, build to a crescendo. It just ends. It's just like, okay, yeah. story's over. Okay, we did it. Hey, look, uh, 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 Eli has weird pants on. 
and sandals. He sure does. It's like there's a whole scene where like his outfit is more interesting than the conversation. <laughs> And yet it's like kind of cool. You know what I mean? So like, I, anyways, I, I wonder if there's a bit of like, even though there aren't quite the <laughs> obviously the very well crafted, awkward situations of Curb Your Enthusiasm, the aesthetic is similar. And I, I don't know that people would find that compelling, but I think it, it would be interesting to be like, oh, I do wonder if this style of movie was an influence. I mean, I think you could compare this more to like, um, oh, my brain just shut off. Uh, three women. Sure. The the Robert Altman film. That's what I meant. I was saying that to get Altman. I couldn't get to Altman. Sure. I feel like this might feel, and I wouldn't even say, sorry, three women was not the right example. It's just the first movie I can think of to get sure. Altman's name out of you. Uh, I think you could compare this more to like certain Altman movies, though it doesn't have the intensity. Like a lot of Altman films are like, I'm throwing these two actors at each other, just filming what happens, you know? And it's yeah, like yeah. really intense. This isn't that because they're, even when they're having an argument, it's just like, it feels silly. Even though these are serious arguments, it doesn't feel it's not like a, that that level of Altman dr- drama, but it is that level of like, I'm not I'm not controlling these people. They're doing what they need to do for what they think is happening here. It's just with interesting with different pieces than you would expect. So um, let's also talk a little bit about that. One of the other uh, noticeable people <laughs> shows up Orson Welles. Uh, apparently he opens the movie. I miss that altogether. But at a certain point, Karen Black is in bed with Michael Emil. They're watching. He's she's watching TV. He's reading to her from something that she's not interested in, and he's watching. She's watching this thing that is Orson Welles as a magician rabbi, and he's like telling stories and doing magic on TV. Is that- he's reading an article about how Japanese people love television more than Americans, which yes, is almost impossible true. to even that's, imagine. Yeah, it, at unbelievable. This point. Yeah, 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 and she is is enraptured by this program she's watching. And then they, every once in a while, will cut to the program which she's watching, and it's just obviously old footage of Orson Welles because he looks nothing like he looked in 1983. So looked like stuff that was shot in the 70s and shot on a completely different stock of film. And you're right. He's just a magician. It's almost like he's improvising a, ma- a magic show where he's also playing this rabbi character. And it's impossible to understand why she thinks it's so good <laughs> or why she would care about it. It's like they filmed her really like fascinated by his show but had no idea what they were actually going to put in there and he's like well i got this orson welles footage then we can say orson welles appears in the movie (laughs) there there was one review on letterboxd that was like oh this is like key to the meaning of the movie because he's playing a rabbi and it's like she's fascinated by judaism while michael emile's character isn't interested and i'm like you are digging my friend this is a man doing magic tricks with a slightly different accent there and by the way failing a big chunk of this because a big thing (laughs) is he's trying to make these animals disappear and it's not fucking working you know at a certain point um i think you're right i think this is just a random inclusion and and almost like jaglin being like hey you guys though i know orson welles right he's gonna be in this movie um you got it flaunted just like if you got carol kane flaunted i think uh, yeah yeah and we're we're i think we're gonna get to that next but the the last thing i want to say doug is i think we both are i was surprised that you didn't dislike this as much as i thought you did and maybe you're surprised that i did dislike this as much i am especially because i did message you and you you'd only watch like a first half and you were like 
I literally said I fucking hate it. The first half is better than the second. <laughs> I, it's just really, I, I, I ended up appreciating it, but at first I was like, this is fucking making me mad. And in the end, I kind of appreciate it, but here's the thing. I wouldn't call it, uh, as one reviewer did, one of the important, most important independent films of the 80s. And if, as another reviewer said, it's it's uh, uh, Jaglum's masterwork, it doesn't make me want to watch more of his movies. It makes me kind of say, well, okay, that's cool, but it's not for me. Uh, so I just wanted to check in with you, Doug. Just, you know, this is sort of a, just a, a, a check in on us as as film watchers and, and makers of, of media. Are we Philistines? Like, what what the fuck? What is it that – are we just not smart enough? Is it just not our speed? They're just – well, there are people who are, like, revile this film and are really angry about it and write very uh, acidic things about it on the internet. There are people who love this and really feel like this is accomplishing something. I mean, even that review that you included, you know, this is a new era in filmmaking. And, like, I just don't get that. And I don't know if, like – are we just not on the same page with people? Like, what's happening with this movie? The dangerous thing here would be to be dismissive of people or to think that they're being performative when they say right. that they yes. really love it and appreciate it. And I think that that is a something that we have to be careful not to do. And I honestly believe that one of the things that we're most, most missing here is the context of when this movie was released and the kind of movies that it was being released among, right? This was someone doing a different form of filmmaking with, you know, still with recognizable actors or even at least Karen Black in it and with d- decent production values that he was trying to make a movie uh, that is semi-improvised, that is about this relationship that shows off this city in a very unique way. Like this is stuff that, yeah, when you see Slacker now, R- 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 Richard Linklater's Slacker, it still has a real resonance to it. You're like, but seeing it in 1989 or, 1980, or 1991 – um that was a revolution for people. They were like, holy shit, I've never seen a movie like this, even though he was just aping people that he had seen as well. What I should say is we've seen movies and television shows like Kirby Enthusiasm, which took some of the methods that Henry Jaglin were using in this, and they turned it into much more mass market entertainment. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not knocking it, but made it a lot more palatable. And looking back at this rough edged version, you are left a little bit. It's like, what is it doing? And so this might be something where people respected it and were like, I can't even believe that this is even watchable because it shouldn't have come out in a way that was watchable. And so like, it's almost like a magic trick in and of itself. The fact that they made a movie in this format, in this style with these actors, and that it came out in a way that seems to have some sort of central point, even though we're struggling to find it, but also is watchable and funny and unique in its own way. I think that that alone is enough of a reason to appreciate it. And I also think it's something where if we knew more of Henry Jaglum's work and saw how intimate it was in regards to what yeah. he was trying to put out there, that we'd have a greater appreciation. To me, it's like, you know, we're, we're coming in in the middle of the movie to a certain extent, right? Where you start listening to Bob Dylan with Blood on the Tracks without any context of what came after and what came before. It's still a masterpiece of an album, but it doesn't have the same resonance as it does without the context. And, you know, I think we're just missing a little piece of the context. I will say watching this makes me more interested to see more of his movies, even though I know that I would have to be in the mood to really enjoy them. Yeah, I mean, the most encouraging reviews I read were actually people who were familiar with his work who said, this is actually not exactly like his other stuff. I still like it, but I think... It's not the place to start. And I found that encouraging because while I 
appreciated this and there were parts of it I found very endearing. It didn't get me excited. But now that I know, well, this is maybe an interesting deviation from other things that he did, I'm really curious to see like what his other stuff is like. And I'm, you know, I'm even curious about, you know, uh uh this actor. I you know, is this how Michael Emile is in every performance or what's my what's going endearing on? thought about this is I need to see Michael Emile more stuff because I cannot believe that he's had right. like, a career. <laughs> he has though. It's crazy. I know. There's, I just got to say, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when him and Karen Black are having this conversation that he's very upset with her, but she's trying to be very calm and she very nonchalantly is fixing his comb over, which is like one of the worst comb overs I've ever seen. She's like adjusting the comb over on his head. And I just was like, Karen Black is a gift to the world. Uh, We should talk about Carol Kane, who is a gift to the world, but maybe not a gift to this movie. So I'm just thinking about the fact that he like, he, he has this. Very kind of monotone way of speaking, and he never goes really up or down. Even when he's like really upset, instead of being like yelling and screaming, he's like, I'm really upset right now. <laughs> I'm so upset. What am I looking at right now? It's just it's just a really funny way of playing a lot of this. I don't know. I found that guy fascinating. But yeah, let's talk about Carol Kane's gigantic performance in Can She Make a Cherry Pie? I actually have started to wonder whether that's actually Carol Kane in this movie at all. <laughs> I mean, here's here's my response to that, Doug. When does it happen? I finished the whole movie and I couldn't tell you when she's in the movie. Oh, oh, okay. I'll tell you exactly when it happens. It's that uh, it's when they first meet. Uh, when when Karen Black's character, uh, she goes to the restaurant yes. and she doesn't know what to order. She's all mixed up. Yeah. And they're sitting at the next table. There's one table over, and Carol Kane is at that table. She's just sitting there. She has no lines. I didn't recognize her at all. It didn't even. Stick out <laughs> So you never saw Carol Kane in this movie at all. It's only one scene. She does again. She's turned away from the from the camera for the most part. You, unless you knew she was in this, this isn't even like Larry Davis part where it's just like here he is for a scene. She is literally a background extra in this movie. I don't know why. I mean, I assume she knows him or is a fan of his work, right? Even as doing it a favor, was she? famous enough for that like wouldn't that just be distracting if she was famous and if she's not famous then why why do that just to take up the frame that's it's so strange well doesn't it mean that there are three oscar nominees in this movie because she's in it who do we have uh wells and black oh that's right and i guess that's okay francis fisher hasn't been nominated for an oscar so she's in Unforgiven, which was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, true, maybe, true. maybe, maybe you're right. <laughs> I mean, straight up. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to play games with the, with y'all. I, I really just. Oh, you're right. He does start. I'm literally putting the movie on my phone right now to see if I can. I, I was. I, it's funny. I'm just looking. I'm like, where's my copy of it? I need to find it so I can. But of course, I was. I. I <laughs> she's very early in the movie. <laughs> Why didn't you fucking reach out and ask me? Because I thought it was so funny that I never noticed her. And I was like, I'm just not going to ask. I'm just going to just come up on the podcast that I don't fucking know where she is in this movie. For those of you who don't listen to our Eric Roberts podcast, there's lots of episodes where we pick a movie and then we don't know how much of Eric Roberts did it. And he usually has like a scene in it, right? Especially in in recent movies where he does dozens and dozens of movies each year. Um, 
I did not expect that to happen on this podcast. Where, but it's even less. It's less yeah. than that. It's like almost like an in joke, right? It'd be like a famous actor taking a, a stroll in the background of a scene. Except in this case, it's not even like she her face is positioned in a way that you would recognize it. It is, uh, yeah, it it is the least Carol Kane performance that we will ever cover on this podcast. I mean, I think the thing uh, is that even in those Eric Roberts movies. It's like uh let's say you let's say you order spaghetti and meatballs, right? And it comes and there's just one small meatball in it and it's all the rest is spaghetti. That's an Eric Roberts performance. He's still important to the movie. He's still like even if he's only in there for one second, chances are they put him on the fucking poster and shit. Yeah, yeah. This with Carol Kane, it's like I finished the whole burrito and you're like, you know, there was there was a piece of shrimp in there, and I'm like, there was? Where was the shrimp? I didn't taste any shrimp. It was a beef burrito. You're like, yeah, but it did have a it had a shrimp in there. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's how I feel. Like, I am literally watching that scene on my phone going, where's Carol Kane? I don't see her. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's so funny. It's <laughs> she so is funny. in the movie. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. I'm not worried about it, but it is like. I think one of the examples, I hopefully the only example we'll have of something where it's like. I think she's in it. I don't know. We'll see. It's funny. I'm looking at a, a Washington Post article from 1984. It says, Henry Jaglum, writer-director of the critically acclaimed Can She Bake a Cherry Pie, who was informed by his distributor that it simply didn't have the money to take out Oscar ads. He was expecting to get Oscar nominations for this movie. Again, this is where <laughs> I find myself thinking, like, more than just, oh, it's not my flavor, but, like, what am I missing? You know, what is there going on here that just – is beyond me to understand. I mean, you know, this was an era of, I mean, even like my dinner with Andre type stuff, right? Where the, the conversations, the fact that, you know, maybe not the most photogenic characters having lengthy conversations that are very self-interested. It's not, it's not dissimilar from some of the stuff that was popular at that time period. Carol Kane stars in Can, can She Make a Cherry Pie? <laughs> This is Leah, also Leah didn't find her in the movie. This is no my dinner with Andre. Can we be clear about that? Let me just make hey, sure that that's clear. I'm just saying that it, they're both movies. <laughs> they are. That is fair. They're they are both movies. I don't think it's in that first scene. It must be some other part of the movie because it's I don't it's think in. There. I'll 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 tell you what you uh you Wait, continue with what we're doing. We're gonna, yeah, we're gonna wrap up here. Hey guys, on the next episode we're gonna talk about. <laughs> Fairytale Theaters, Sleeping Beauty. Uh, wait, what is this? I, I haven't read this. <laughs> let me let me tell you what we're going to cover on the next yeah. episode. What are we covering on the next episode, Doug? Uh, in the next episode, we're going to be watching 1984's Over the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, which is stars Elliot Gould uh, about a Jewish man who owns a Brooklyn deli, asks his domineering uncle for a loan so he can buy his dream restaurant in Manhattan. Uh, apparently, uh, Carol Kane has a, a much larger part in this one, but it mostly stars Elliot Gould, Margot Hemingway, and Sid Caesar, as well as the late Burt Young is in here as well. I don't hear a lot about this movie. I, I don't know if it made a huge impression in 1984, but uh, I imagine we'll get more Carol Kane in it than we did in this movie. But we're also pairing it with an episode of Shelley Duvall's Fairytale Theater, which uh, is an adaptation of Sleeping Beauty, starring Beverly D'Angelo, Bernadette Peters, and Christopher Reeve, and that has Carol Kane as the good fairy in it. So I'm very uh, curious about that. Lots of familiar faces in the cast of this, as as most of these fairy tale theaters have. Doug, if people want to hear more <laughs> of us searching for Carol Kane in various movies, or searching for other actors in other movies, where can they find that? 
well, you can always find the latest episode of this podcast and all Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts over at Cinepunks.com, which also has a collection of wonderful other podcasts and writing. Uh, you can find that on most social networks under the name Cinepunks, including Instagram, uh, Twitter. Oh, wait, is Cinepunks still on Twitter? It still is, right? Yeah. Twitter and on Blue Sky. Uh, and you can, of course, also join the Cinepunks Discord. Where you can always just reach out to Liam or myself and get the secret invite to that as long as you're a cool person. I know you're cool because you're listening to a Carol Kane themed podcast. If you want to see the entire archive of uh, Praising Kane, you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com where we have our Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, Steve Buscemi, Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy, Oliver Reed. Podcasts devoted to these specific people. Find that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. And you can also follow me, Liam, over on Blue Sky. Just look up Doug Tilly. It's T-I-L-L-E-Y. I'm on that blue sky, too. It's Liam Rules. You'll find it. It's fine. We're waiting for one of these fucking social networks to win, okay? That's yeah. just where we are for now. <laughs> yeah, it's not, none of them are very interesting right now, but hopefully they'll get better. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, if you like this, tell tell a friend. Tell a friend about it. And uh, if if you are watching, for some reason, Can't You Bake a Cherry Pie, and you see Carol Kane clearly, send me the screenshot. I don't, Look, I think the, it's the image that's going to be attached to this episode will be a screenshot showing clearly Carol Kane. I promise you, listeners. All right, if you say so. All right, thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. Have a good night. <laughs> Have a good night. Bye-bye.